Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'd like to welcome you to this next episode of Exponential Wisdom. And I'm here with Peter Diamantis, who I think is one of the greatest scouts and explorers of all things technological on the planet today. And Peter, at the very last Abundance 360 General Conference in January, the last speaker that we had in the regular session was a friend of yours who has just left Amazon to join a brand new organization, which is called Rebuild Manufacturing. And I sat there and I said, this is a trillion dollar opportunity, what he's doing right here. So can you go over the background of Jeff and also just talk about, because I really follow geopolitics and it just so thumped home when he was talking about what he was doing there that it just seems like a huge thing. And it's starting already. It's already underway. Of course, it's a great subject where, you know, post-COVID and during the whole pandemic, one of the many victims was the global supply chain, where all of a sudden you couldn't get something anymore because the materials to get it were difficult to get because they were coming out of China and so forth. So some of the things we should talk about here is why does the global supply chain get so partitioned globally? There are reasons. Going back to your opening here, so at at Abundance 360 last year, one of the incredible speakers and a friend, Jeff Wilkie, Jeff was number two at Amazon. He ran basically Amazon worldwide, everything other than the cloud, right? I mean, He was Santa Claus for the entire planet. And talk about understanding supply chain. Nobody knows supply chain better than Amazon. Before joining Amazon, he was at MIT and he was enamored by the whole world of manufacturing, distribution, all of this. Long story short, America has lost a lot of its base manufacturing. A lot of the manufacturing jobs, a lot of manufacturing technology have gone to where it's cheaper because of labor and where it has become super specialized, right? And this is the equivalent of the iPhone being made at Foxconn in China. Super specialized so that the quality goes through the roof and the price goes through the floor. But Jeff and his colleagues said, there is an opportunity to bring back manufacturing to the United States or to bring it to any country that wants to make that commitment by bringing best practices and then acquiring companies that are doing okay and making them do amazing by really bringing in the best practices. And they called the company Rebuild, R-E colon Build. It's just gotten going. You know, full disclosure, I'm an investor in Jeff's company. But the idea of bringing best practices, what does that mean? It means artificial intelligence. It means sensors. It means robotics. It means 3D printing is extraordinary. And I'll give one more example and turn it back to you, Dan, which is one of the other companies I'm an investor in that I'm excited about that you've seen on my A360 stage is Relativity Space. This is the company that is 3D printing entire rockets, right? It's like 95% of the rockets 3D printed in three months. And the 3D printers they're using, they call Stargates. You could 3D print a rocket in Detroit, in Taiwan, in Mumbai, you know, any place you have the raw stock and the 3D printer, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah. Well, I'd like to take it back. The historical reasons for the global supply chains actually goes back to an agreement that was made 
right at the end of the Second World War, uh, among 44 countries about what the post-Second World War was going to look like. And the one country that did not participate in these talks was the Soviet Union. And to make a long story short, people were seeing right off the bat at the end of the Second World War that there was going to be a global standoff between people who completely disagreed about how countries should be run and how economies should be run, and that's the Soviet Union, and practically everybody else. So I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons for the global supply chains was the biggest bribe that's ever been issued on the planet. <laughs> and that was basically that the U.S. to offset the Soviet Union. Soviet Union created an iron curtain. The Americans created a prosperity curtain. Mm. So what they did is they said, look, we've got our military. We've got the biggest, best military that's ever existed, especially Navy. Global trade totally depends upon shipping, maritime shipping. And they basically issued a blank check to the world that if you will participate in a worldwide network of economics, the U.S. Navy, Air Force, Army, Marines will totally protect your trade routes. And not only that, but you can ship anything you want into the United States without tariffs and we'll lend you the money to actually produce it. And they also wow. said to American manufacturers, we'd like you to start moving some of your operations to these other countries so that they can actually be participants in the worldwide trade. Now, the whole reason for this bribe ended in December of 1991 when the Soviet Union, without anybody's permission, gave up. <laughs> so for the last 30 years, the reason for this deal, the bribe, uh, disappeared and it became, you know, more and more expensive. And it was very, very expensive to the infrastructure of the United States and to workers. And wow. my whole point is that COVID was kind of like crossing the T's and dotting the I's. You know, we got to rethink this whole supply chain thing. And, you know, the world got a big scare and U.S. got a big scare. But my sense, Peter, is that it's been heading in that direction for 30 years. I didn't realize the historical anchor that you just provided, and it's fascinating. But, you know, where that has led us to is really the specialization and subspecialization of even cities and towns, especially in China, right, where you've got groups that are specializing in I've gone to China a number of times before our longevity platinum trips. We used to do China platinum trips, and we would go and spend five days in the different provinces with the top tech companies there. And the Chinese government has created such a specialization, like this city will be a city focused on biotech. This city is a city focused on electronics manufacturing. The city is a city on autonomous cars. And as a result of really cheap labor and specialization of manufacturing processes, some of these suppliers have become literally unbeatable in the pharmaceutical space or the electronic space. You know what the biggest threat to China's dominance in manufacturing is? It is the rising labor rates, you know, yeah. and the decreasing cost well, the, the, of the robots. The other thing is that they are now in a state of depopulation. China, as of last year, crossed the line and they're now depopulating. They're missing 40 million mothers because when they went through the one-child 
period, which lasted close to 40 years, but it's more than it was just a government policy. It's a habit of the people that they don't have more than one child, and they've adjusted their lifestyle. They've adjusted everything. One of the problems, Peter Diamandis, who's a geopolitician, was with the firm <laughs> Stratford, and he said that if you just take normal 50-year growth rates of population, China's less than a billion people in 2100, and the U.S. is more than half a billion people in 2100, so the U.S. is half the population. But the big thing is, if there was ever a country that was made for supply chains, it's the United States and North America, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. It's all there for the greatest supply chain in the world, because you got very cheap labor, very young labor in Mexico. The U.S. lost its you know, 50, 100-year-old manufacturing infrastructure because it just went out of business. And so the work that Jeff at Rebuild is doing they're coming in at the highest possible level with robotics, with automation, with computerization. Yep. And they're bringing it into an area that has the greatest transportation infrastructure system in the world. Four ways, water, it's the greatest river system in the world. The Mississippi, it's 87 rivers. They're all navigable. They all go downstream. They all end up in the Gulf of Mexico. You have a huge railway system. There's seven major railroads that come out of Chicago, and they touch every part of the United States. And then the interstate highway system is the greatest, largest highway system in the world. It's 63,000 miles right now, and they add another 500 miles every year. It's the biggest public works project in the history of the world. And then here's the one thing that we could really talk about, people living where they wanna live because they can work virtually. What's happening now, I've got one of my clients is into private jets and he also maintains private jet airports. And he said, it's just explosive. The number of towns of 50 to 80,000 who are now putting in first class landing strips with full avionics and, you know, the air traffic control and everything because CEOs are living in that area, but they still have to get places fast and they're using private jets to get there. Yeah. And one of the companies, I think I've mentioned to you, Verijet, which I'm an investor and board member in, is basically Uberizing jet travel. It it uses a beautiful, brand new, state-of-the-art Cirrus jet, which is a pilot plus four or five passengers and it has a parachute, it has an auto land, push a button and the airplane will land itself without any human involvement. The price has gotten low enough where you can call it and have a jet to you within a couple hours and no repositioning fees. So it really is when you're getting a chance to trade time versus money. But yeah, where you want to live and work, becoming delaminated, deassociated mm-hmm. is a big deal. You know, The interesting thing is we're seeing in our world the price of labor continuously going up. We're seeing the minimum wage being pushed and pushed and pushed. And at the same time, we're seeing the impact of machine learning, neural nets on robotics becoming better and better. And there will be a crossover point where it's just that much cheaper, that much more efficient, that much more reliable to just put robots in the place where humans were doing work before. We're not fully there. Well, I would say that humans have always been crappy machines. 
Yeah. I was born in the 40s, and my area of Ohio was all big industry. It was the automobile industry. It was, it was still the aeronautics industry. Ohio was the center, the beginning center of air travel. The Wright brothers are from Dayton. Steel, I mean, huge steel factories. I mean, Pittsburgh is one of them, but we had huge steel factories in at least three cities in Ohio. But the whole point was that you had to really regiment human beings to not screw up the machines. But humans really, really aren't good machines. We get bored, we get distracted, we get tired. We have fights with our spouses. Yeah, we're actually made for random innovation. I mean, the whole human brain and everything is for random, sudden jump, guessing innovation. That's what we're really good at. But the other thing we're good at is service. So my sense is there will be constant expansion of the service economies into niches that we don't even know about yet. Yep. I love the phrase that comes from Four Seasons that I've learned from you, mm-hmm. which is automate the routine and humanize the exceptional. Yeah. And it's true. We are going to – the other thing I think about is that robots are great to do the jobs. They're dull, dangerous, or dirty. It's always a good sort of like mental is that. Is that a job that could be done better by a robot? Yeah, and dangerous, too, you know. I mean, things like logging, fishing, mining, these are incredibly dangerous activities. Peter, you know, you've thought so much of Rebuild, and you've invested in it, and you know Jeff. You know, and if they have a game plan, what would you say is step one in their game plan, step two in their game plan? Because everybody I've talked about this, and my clients come from all 50 states, my clients are 80% not big city entrepreneurs. They live in suburbs or they live in smaller communities. And the moment I start talking about the rebuilding of manufacturing and supply chains, they have a personal interest because it involves things that are going to happen locally for them. So how are they How are they approaching this? That's a great question. And maybe I should bring the, the actual, you know, Jeff Wilkie is a board member and a co-founder, but not the CEO. Maybe I should bring the CEO of Rebuild to A360 yeah. this year. Well, they're all MIT people. Yeah. I looked up, you know, so they must have known each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, those MIT people, they're just. Those MIT people. Yeah. So, you know, I just know when I originally invested, the initial business plan is best practices in manufacturing and then going and acquiring companies that are already up and going where they have a market niche and just making them more competitive and moving that curve. I mean, there are also incredible companies, like one of the supply chain issues we've hit is pharmaceutical supply chains. A lot of the molecules in medicines and drugs are coming out of China, which is fine, but not if you get disrupted in your supply chain. So there's a company that John Scully, past CEO of Pepsi and Apple, who's a friend and a board member with a couple of companies together. There is a US company that has built a machine that is able to do molecular assembly of like a hundred different pharmaceutically active molecules. And you can imagine this being accessible to the military at different locations, right? So the interesting thing is, you know, the military has driven a lot of supply chain technologies, right? Where, you know, they have these long supply chains that, you know, the supply chain destroyed Napoleon's efforts. And you know more about this than I did going into Moscow. Yeah. 
As a matter of fact, the U.S. won the Second World War because the U.S. was the greatest supply chain country in history. Yeah. Because we had been shipping things 3,000 miles just as a function of developing the country. I got a great story. Two great stories about supply chains. Okay. I'm going to say one thing and then unleash your stories. Well, these are both military, I, I tell you. Okay. So, you know, you're such an incredible student of history, and I'm not. I'm looking forward. Mm. <laughs> Unique ability, teamwork, Peter. That's awesome. We, we, we are a great team. There is a story, though, of Napoleon realizing that feeding his troops was a big problem as they, you know, descended on Moscow. And so he actually wrote an X prize, we'll call it an X prize, an incentive competition. And he asked teams, innovators to come up with ideas of how do you preserve food? And it was a French champagne maker champagne who came up yeah. with the idea of canning foods. Yeah. Yeah. And canned foods came from that competition. Yeah. Uh, the, all their cans were champagne bottles. The supplies that the French army took. Yeah. The reason for that is that during the revolution, they killed the entire officer corps. Armies used to be 10,000, 20,000 people, so he went to mass conscription. He had armies of 300,000, but you can't live off the land when you have a 300,000. you got to supply the food. But a couple of stories about Please. supply chain. So the U.S. invade Normandy. I was born just before Normandy in 1944, two weeks before. But once they got the ports, like they got Rotterdam and some of the big ports, they started shipping supplies and they used the rail system for really good rail systems. And there's a story of a German general from a distance watching a U.S. supply train, and it was three miles long. And he said, on this one train, there's more military equipment than I've ever seen in my military career. Yep. And he said, this is the fifth train today. He says they've shipped fifth train. So the U.S. really had logistics down pat. Another story that at the end of the 1944, the U.S. was pumping out so much new war material that the word went out to the Pacific Fleet. Now, the Pacific Fleet had around... 45, 50 aircraft carriers, okay? They started the war with two, and they had 45 wow. at the end of the war. And they had four or 5,000 carrier planes. These were the Corsairs and the Hellcats. And they said, we've got an entirely new batch, so we'll send you entirely new planes. And the ones you have, just push them off the side. <laughs> oh, my God, really? <laughs> they basically pushed overboard about 4,000 planes. And there's a lot of fish now who are living in reefs. <laughs> <laughs> but what kind of supply chain where they can say, look, it's costing us more to repair these than it is to send you new ones. And we've got them. What are we going to do with them? But there's a great film. It's called The Battle of the Bulge. It was a crucial right at the end of 1944. And a German officer who's a tank commander, and they were just running out of fuel. They just didn't have fuel. And he comes in and he talks to his troops and he says, I want to tell you what we're up against. And he's got a box and he opens the box and it's, it's a birthday cake and says, happy birthday, Tom. And he said, we can't get gasoline for our tanks and they're sending their troops birthday cakes. <laughs> Why, God, how demoralizing was that? Nothing works without supply chains. So there is an ultimate supply chain looking forward 30 years, and it's the whole field of nanotechnology. If you think about the fact that everything we have is made up of individual atoms, and when you take an oak 
tree seed and you plant it in the ground, people don't think about this, but in that oak seed, there is the DNA instruction set to take the atoms and molecules in the soil around it and rearrange them slowly over time into what ultimately will become a giant oak. It's just biology is a very slow process, but that is really what's going on, right? The DNA is the instruction set and there's a little bit of machinery in there and it's able to then slowly aggregate the molecules and elements. So a gentleman by the name of K. Eric Drexler, who's a friend from MIT, wrote a book called Engines of Creation in the mid 80s, following on the works of- Feynman? Feynman, Uh, yes, yes, Richard Feynman, thank you. Yeah, who first conceived the idea that you could build very small atomic machines. And Eric wrote this book and changed the perception that in the future, we're gonna have assemblers. And these assemblers are small nanomachines that can take atoms, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, whatever it might be, and, and assemble what you need. And I might have a microscopic assembler in my hand and say, you know, grab a few cells out of my hand and make Dan one, and now you have one. And you can drop it in the soil and have it reassemble things to make a electric Ferrari if you want. And it might say to you, I need more lithium, or if I'm short on... But the ultimate supply chain is being able to rearrange the resources you have right there to manufacture what you need. And in a completely different area, you're taking us in August on a visit to where they can do this with human organs. Yes. To just take a cell of any organ and then they reproduce the actual organ, uh, that every cell in the body can actually reproduce the entire organ that it's in. I I mean, I started reading about this, you know, because both of us have a natural interest in life extension. There was a company out of San Diego, I know, that was doing skin already. They were doing arterial systems, like blood systems already. But then they moved on to livers, kidneys, hearts. Bring us up to that, because... One is there's a double fascination here. One is miraculous. And number two is everybody's interested in life extension. Yeah. So, you know, it's a great point. We have a supply chain in our bodies as well of delivering stem cells and the right proteins and glucose and so forth. So it turns out that a Japanese researcher by the name of Yamanaka identified the ability to take any cell, any existing differentiated cell, like a skin cell, and turn it back in time to a induced pluripotent stem cell. So you can take a cell, you treat it in a certain way with four Yamanaka factors, genes, proteins, and you can take it back to a pluripotent stem cell, which can then, has your DNA, but it's gone from a skin cell, or like you said, a liver cell, whatever, but now back to a pluripotent stem cell, it can become any cell in your body, any tissue type. Dean Kamen, one of the greatest inventors, entrepreneurs of our age, he's the creator of the first robotics league competition as well, got a contract from the military to develop a machine that can go from a skin cell effectively to regrowing you a heart, liver, lung, kidney. And we're going to see that when we're together in August. We're going to be going to New Hampshire to his facility So far, they've been able to go and create bone and ligaments. Their next is pediatric hearts. You know, they have a decade-long mission to get to all the organs, and they'll get there. Yeah. But it's amazing. I have a really great urologist in uh, Chicago, 
I talk with him about every six months, and he's very interested in science and technology. And Northwestern University Hospital is one of the 10 largest healthcare centers in the United States. He was saying, you know, he said in the future, we have to knock down a couple blocks because we're going to have organ banks for the hospital. And he said, so if you need a heart replacement, about three months before the operation, you'll go in and they'll regrow your exact heart. They don't want to keep it on ice too long, so they have a timing to actually create your heart uh, just in time. You know, talk about a supply chain so that when you're ready for the operation, your new heart is there and it's DNA perfect. There's no reject because it's entirely made out of you. So there's nothing about you that's going to reject you. And he said, 100 years ago, the only thing that you hoped for for your doctor is that he had a good bedside manner because he didn't know anything. (laughs) He couldn't do anything. (laughs) He couldn't do anything. But he says, look where we are. And I mean, I did an operation with him about five months, and he was in the Da Vinci robot. He wasn't even at the operating table. He had a team at the operating table. He was behind the robot. Yeah. He was across a really big room. He was in a tent, but he did the operation. And he said, you know, Walter Reed and... Washington, the big military hospital, he said that they're doing da Vinci operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the surgeon is in Washington, D.C., and they're doing very, very intricate battlefield operations with a da Vinci robot from, you know, half the world away. Yeah, and 5G is an important part of that because of latency and increased bandwidth. But one of the things that you'll will also meet on our longevity platinum trip in August is George Church and some of his research, some of his companies. And what they're doing is to supply organs in the next few years, they're doing something called humanizing pigs. So it turns out pigs have almost identical size lung, heart, kidney, livers to humans. And what they've done is they've genetically bred a species of pig that they've knocked out the viruses in the pig genome, and they've also created the surface antigens to be human versus pig antigens. And they're getting transplant success rates of up to a year right now. And they'll continue to, without rejection, and they'll continue to increase that over time. So I find it amazing, the idea that we're going to have an extra spare set of organs available to us. We started this topic off on supply chains, but healthcare is, I mean, where we absolutely want the best supply chains. And what I see, according to your reports here, Peter, and what we're going to see on our VIP trip, still a couple empty seats, by the way, Peter? There are. September is oversold. August, which is a trip you're on, has, I think, three seats there and anybody interested can just write to Claire at diamandis.com, C-L-A-I-R-E at diamandis.com. Oh, by the way, Babs and I both have full approval. We were both double vaccinated. Nice. Yeah, we are requiring vaccination. Yeah. And we have proof of it here in Canada. We Yeah. I heard Canadians have gotten very strict on that. You know, COVID was a kick in the pants in many areas. It was a kick in the pants in reinventing travel, healthcare, education and supply chain. And so we're going to see a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. yeah. But I think that the geopolitical reasons for the huge spread out um, supply chains are over. I mean, that was a geopolitical period of the United States. 
everybody profited from it except the United States, really. Well, this is like the belts and road network that China's putting in place now. Yeah. Now they're doing what we did 50, 60 years ago. And that makes no sense whatsoever because any part of that supply chain can be cut off very, very easily. Yeah, I mean, they depend upon 12 to 16 full tankers of oil every single day arrive on the coast of China. But those tankers go through militarily hostile areas. You know, you can just stop. India would just say, thanks for the 16 tankers. You know, we'll just take those. You know, so the big thing is that what we learned, you know, I learned anyway, and just a little progress report, you know, and we'll we'll do this on another session, but our global virtual program is just going through the roof. And 10 years from now, 10 to 1, it'll be virtual workshops to in-person workshops. And I didn't choose it. I, I mean, I didn't choose that. I wouldn't have gotten into it. Yeah, the way we did, but it was available and we responded. I've done the same thing for Abundance 360, my year-round coaching program. I've created what I call the the global virtual membership as well. And, you know, if you don't want to travel 12 time zones and spend 10K in hotel and airfare, it's a heck of a lot cheaper. And in some cases, it's a better experience. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're opening up again in October, probably in Chicago, I told everybody, I've got more to learn going from Zoom to in-person than I did the other way. That was easy. (laughs) That was 24 hours. I said, there's a lot of issues with (laughs) in-person. So anyway, Peter. Good session. I just want to say something. (laughs) Yeah. And this is another supply chain issue. So I've got a client, very, very interesting history. His father was a Danish diplomat. He was an American special forces for 15 years, and he's an electronics engineer, and he's a blockchain expert for the rail infrastructure system in the United States. And he said, I want to tell you why blockchain is needed, and we can talk about blockchain on another topic, but he said, virtually every freight train in the United States has 15% of its cars that are going the wrong way. No shit, really? That's insane. That's crazy, dude. That's crazy. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And he said, because they're using 50, 60-year-old ways of keeping track of things and switching things. I mean, the main station, it's unbelievable. Sometimes you see it. In Chicago, the main station where all the trains come in has 70 tracks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is big. And that's just a 15%. You know, just make sure all the cars are going. (laughs) But blockchain's the only thing that can do it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Dan, this was a fun session. Yep. Look forward to our next one. That's great, Peter.